like a sauna in here. And I can't even say sauna the right way, but if you guys were to come out to the out here in the middle studio and you were sitting here with us right now, you would probably say, well, I would rather sit on top of a frying pan. Well, we're in our little small podcast room and we've got a air conditioner, a wall mounted air conditioner up there that we try to chill off the room for. But today it's about 102 degrees outside and we've had to turn the air conditioner off and the old rickety fan makes too much noise. So our executive producer, Daniel, yells at me when that happens. Between looking at the beads of sweat roll off his face, he's like Simba. He's got so much hair. He's like a lion with a big old mane. I look like a fat pig over here sweating and pigs don't even sweat. I don't even have a mud hole to get in. And then Johnny decides to join us today. And Johnny's over there on the couch loving every minute of it. He's like a lizard soaking up the sun. It's absolutely ridiculous. Uh, Anyways, now that you guys understand the hell that we're going through inside of this podcast room today, the farm world's pretty quiet. We're finally looking like we're going to break our streak of 100 degree weather. And it looks like we're going to dip back down into the 90s. And it looks like it's going to stay that way. Alfalfa looks really good. One of the things that we have to do out here on the farm is we have to make sure that we are conserving our water because we're only allotted so much water. Uh, so we're having to make sure that we are not going to over pump this year because then we will be penalized. So we're trying to make uh, changes from crop to crop to make sure that we're keeping everything alive. But at the same time, making sure that we do not overuse the water that we have. Uh, so that way we're not starting off on the wrong foot for next year. Uh, grape harvest is done. It's over. The fat lady saying, and we are so excited about that. Um, I will be keeping you guys in the loop of where you can buy some of the wine that came out of Dill Valley Vineyards. Um, nothing really has changed as far as, as what you heard on Friday's podcast. What I want you to do, though, is I want you to get yourself mentally prepared for today's podcast, because this is something that I couldn't prepare myself for. And I had cliff notes for it. And it's still something that was so powerful um, that, that I was not able to comprehend. And I, and honestly listening to the way that we conduct this interview um, I'm going to judge myself for a long time because I don't even know how to ask these questions, but get yourself in the right spot to go ahead and listen to what we have. Um, We've got an amazing, amazing line brought up for you today. So with that, let's get started into this episode. This podcast is sponsored by Chaffee. Chaffee is a premium alfalfa product that's grown in the shadows of the Guadalupe Mountains. Our unique climates allows us to have cool nights, warm days, and allows us to have a consistent growing season to make sure that we have the best quality forage product on the market. If you want to know more about Chaffee and what its uh, beneficial use for your farm or ranch could be, check out Chaffee.com. You can also follow us on Instagram or Facebook at Chaffee. Another one of our awesome sponsors is Big Frig Coolers. You know, it seems like everybody has a cooler. I mean, if you if you think about your garage or in the trunk of your car or in the back of your pickup, we all have coolers. One thing about being a farmer and running around on the roads that we have, I can beat the living crap out of anything that you put in the back of my truck. And I've had a lot of coolers. I did not understand what it was like to have a well-made cooler until I got a Big Frig cooler. I got to meet Brock a while back. He's the owner of Big Frig. Him and his amazing team have gone through uh, trial after trial, making sure that they are putting together the best built cooler that you can buy. The cool thing about Big Frig is you're able to customize your cooler as well. So if you're looking for a personalized logo or if you're looking for something for your company to be on top of that, so that way you're always repping your company, get with the guys at Big Frig. They can do any kind of crazy custom order. Uh, I've got my J-Hill logo on mine and I absolutely love it. Went elk hunting with it, orange rubbed all over it. It still looks absolutely amazing. Go to bigfrig.com. They've got all kinds of awesome things and we support 
their movement as they support ours. We look forward to the future with Big Freak. Well, special edition. I mean, it's like it's it's like going to the store and finding that new pair of whatever you're looking for and pulling it out. And it's got the limited time, pull it out of out of thin air and make it into something amazing. We're about to get into something that I hope you guys are sitting in a place that you can really just take a deep breath. Um, sit down and just dive into what we're about to get into because we're going to speak on this special edition. And this is the first ever out here in the middle special edition. Uh, we're going to be speaking with April Rivero um, about International Overdose Awareness Day. This happens on August 31st, 2020. Um, and this is something that as the, as the country is going through all of these different uh, heaves of emotion uh, this is a real crisis that people are facing um, every moment of every day. There are people and people that are probably in our own lives and people in our own families that are struggling with something that that we probably don't know about. And and with that being said, April, I, I just want to tell you from myself and from the team at Chaffe um, how much we appreciate you being on today. And we appreciate the fact that you're standing up and bringing and shining a light onto this issue that so many people still are clueless about. So welcome. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity to, to share. Absolutely. And, awareness. And, and, and as we get into this story and, and, and what's, what's happened in your life and, and how things have pivoted, I, I, I want to say all roads lead to agriculture. It's pretty, it's pretty interesting to see, no matter who you talk to, there's that connection that goes back to somebody somewhere, sometime, some family member that connects us all back to our roots, pun intended. The fact that we've all had the opportunity to grow up on farms is not in today's generation, but at the same time, somebody in, in your family is connected to that. And in April, your family is connected back into agriculture. And explain to us uh, how that happened. Okay, sure. So my dad um, had shared stories with us when we were younger about uh, when he was younger, having to go out and, um, you know, he grew up in New Mexico, in Mountaineer specifically. And so I guess they had land outside uh, the actual town of Mountaineer where they farmed. Um, They raised pinto beans, which was a big crop in that area. I, I don't know if it is still, but back in that time frame, it really was. And so he was expected, as all kids were back in those days, you know, farm to, to get out there on the farm and actually help out. Um, my dad had, and he thought it was a fortunate thing, actually, he had really bad allergies. And so he would get out there and he wasn't really much for working hard like that. So his dad would be out there expecting him to, to pitch in and he'd start talking about his uh, allergies and how you know, he wasn't feeling well and this and that. So they often would give him a break. But, um, you know, my my granddad, I know, definitely had that farm and, you know, raised those pinto beans. And then my grandmother, who on the other side of my, my family, my mother's mother, actually worked at the pinto processing plant that was in, in Mountaineer. So she took it the next step down the path in terms of getting it out to, you know, me and everybody else. So that was also another little connection. It's amazing because too, there's, there's not a whole lot going on in the farm world when you go to Mountaineer these days, but mm-hmm. you can still see where the native sod has grown back over the farmland. Mm-hmm. You can actually see where the rows were, were cultivated into the soil up there. It's a really neat, if you, if you're looking at the, the state of New Mexico and if you almost put your finger in the dead center of the state, that's where it is. It's got kind of a higher elevation. It's a cooler summer. Uh, right. Not a harsh winter, but a, a colder winter. And and they were known for there's quite a few small towns around that area 
that were known for growing the highest quality of pinto bean. And uh, and we've got yeah, I guess so. we've got a we've got a saying on the farm here that frijoles es fuerza. That means that beans are power, and uh, we all we all uh, appreciate a good pinto bean. So it's just amazing, you know, <laughs> you guys how your family kind of ties back. So your family left, right? And and they mm-hmm. went to to California. Yeah, my mom and dad, you know, their families lived just around the corner from each other in little tiny, you know, Mount Marin. So they met, they got married, but they got married in Holbrook, Arizona. And then that was on their way to California, where my dad ended up working in the oil fields initially when he was, you know, when they were first married. But, um, and then they had five of us in California. So I am actually a native Californian, but with deep roots in, in New Mexico in particular. Absolutely. It's amazing how you can use that in this term and it really <laughs> gets to talk about organic. Um, yeah. So, so tell us a little bit about your, your professional life and kind of how you grew up and, and we're going to start to set the scene for, for why we're having a special edition, but you grew up in California, uh, brother, sisters, what, give us the, the rundown. Yeah, I, I'm the oldest of five of us. So always been kind of the second mom to the younger ones, of course. And, and when I was 18, um, I mean, I had always just expected that I would go on to college right out of high school. And I actually signed up to go into to college, the community college. But I also decided to get married, which, you know, looking back was pretty stupid. I would say, you know, at 18 years old, I thought I really knew everything and felt very confident about getting out into not just a mar- in a married environment, but also, you know, just getting a job. And, and my plan was to, to continue, you know, to, to go ahead and go into uh, college. Um, I moved from like the Ventura area in California, which is the southern part of the, the state, um, further south into San Diego area, where my husband, my first husband was from. And so um, I needed a job and I applied for and immediately got uh, a great job working for Pacific Bell. And um, I ended up spending 30 years of my adult years um, working for the telecommunication you know, in the world and uh, working, migrating from Pacific Bell. And then when divestiture uh, of AT&T happened in, two, in 1984, I moved over to AT&T and ultimately AT&T spun off the manufacturing uh, Western Electric arm. And that became Lucent Technology, and that was part of the business that I ultimately retired from. So here I was, like 48 years old, 30 years service, because I started so young, and um, an opportunity came for me to leave, you know, the business. So I was in a full retirement mode by the time I was 48. My last 20 years of that time frame, working for AT&T and Lucent Technology, so had been in the project management environment. So as a first level, you know, project manager managing pretty notable projects, moving ultimately into a district level position where I manage a team of project managers and customer service individuals. Uh, that was a nationwide team managing multi million dollar projects that you had to be good at organizing, planning, and, you know, implementing, and not just me, myself, but the whole team managing that. Now, if I'm not mistaken, you were the first female to be implemented into the national team. Yeah, it was really, um, in, I started out as a clerk, you know, working in the district office, just doing like accounts payable. But ultimately, um, within about a three-year time frame, there, it was the time of affirmative action, and they were looking for women to move into the male dominated environment, you know, technicians. And I was working um, at one point as a clerk in an area, in a group where 
it was all these technicians working. I was managing their payroll so I could see what they were getting paid compared to me. So bottom line is I took some electronics classes and, and ultimately was able to move into a technician position. So I was one of the very first females to be in that um, male-dominated dominated, uh, technical environment, which I really loved and thrived in. I, that was really my cup of tea more than the clerical work. And then within about two years of being in that environment as a technician, I became one of the very first female supervisors. So the group I had been working in as a technician, I was then the supervisor of so about 60, mostly men. <laughs> so, and then from there, I just, what was, started, go ahead. What was that like? I mean, and then the fact that, you know, because people were all obviously talking about, hey, we're going to start implementing, you know, a plan to bring women yeah. into these higher level positions. What was it like with the team and, and mm-hmm. all of these men that had been in that business for so long? And then they're like, well, you're just getting placed here because of your gender. Yeah, well, it really wasn't that. I was a really hard worker and I picked up, you know, the technology really quickly. So um, there were some of the guys that were super supportive. They really were because I was one of those roll up your sleeves and get involved and not just sit in the office and dictate, you know. I was a worker also, and I mm-hmm. continued to be that. So I had some that were, you know, they, they told me later I was the best supervisor they'd ever had. But then, of course, there were the naysayers. Oh, you know, why'd she get promoted? Uh, you know, I, I've been here for 20 years. I should have been the one. But they weren't working very hard either. Right. So, you know, they weren't the best person for the job. So That's a testament to your life, too, and the fact that, you know, it wasn't just given just because of your gender, the yeah. fact that you actually earned the position and that you you led by example, which is something that we strive for at, at our team is to make sure that it doesn't matter if you chop weeds or if you cut payroll checks, your your job is to, to work and to support the team. And so, that's, right. I mean, that's awesome. So yeah. congratulations on, on, on a career well done. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> oh, and I just really look back you know, I mean, I had some really tough assignments and I sometimes wondered if I, if I needed to leave sooner than I did. But um, it was such a uh, it was such an opportunity to learn skills, interpersonal skills and leadership skills and decision making skills that, you know, into the work that we're I know going to talk about. It's totally transferable and it's really made it possible, I think, for me to move beyond the tragic situation that I that really spurred me into this you know, this nonprofit environment that I'm in now with skills that were transferable and helped me manage the grief that was just so profound initially when, you know, we lost our family member to this uh, problem that we're talking about. You know, that was that was one thing that, that I've heard for a long time is there's three concepts to, to business development, personal development. One is education. Um, two would be mm-hmm. experience. Uh, but the third is what trumps everything, and that's work ethic. Yeah, absolutely. A, a person that is not educated or um, does not have a ton of experience, but has the grit to get through some of these things, um, has the opportunity to be as equally successful as those that consider themselves uh, well qualified for something that they're going to get into. So, mm-hmm. well, and I just want to add on to my story um, when you mentioned the word education. So um, my first marriage, you know, about eight years into it, uh, failed. It was because of drug usage my, my first husband got into, which had not been the case when we first married. But we did have a, a son together. And um, once I separated from that relationship, I was working full time. And Pacific Bell and AT&T actually paid for me to get ultimately my bachelor's degree in business um, administration. So 
And they also paid for me to get my master's certificate in project management. So I do have my education. That really made a, a big difference because I always wanted that. That was just, you know, that I was going to get my degrees and, you know, I, I did and they paid for it, which was great. Absolutely. So you find yourself, or I'm, I'm digging back into your story a little bit here, but so eight years of marriage and mm-hmm. that marriage ends and uh, put yourself through school. You're working. Um, where, where are we going from here? Well, I did get remarried and it was to somebody who also worked for AT&T. So, um, you know, we had that certainly in common. How did that HR talk go? I'm sorry. I said, how did that HR talk go? You know, talking, talking to your, to your human resources person, no, no problems there. Oh, well, no, we didn't work in the same exact group. So we worked um, in downtown Los Angeles. They had this massive Pacific Bell and then evolved into AT&T also on a massive complex. So we worked in completely different groups and we wouldn't have even met each other. Had it not been for um, my best friend who moved over to his group and thought we'd make a great parent. <laughs> so 40 years later, we've been married 40 years. We just had our anniversary in March this year, and we also had a son together. So after about eight years of marriage, because we were very busy building our own careers, and I would say probably more so me than him. But <laughs> anyway, super busy going to school and working full time and raising my, my oldest son and Finally, we said, oh, you know, if we're going to do this, we better do it because we were in our mid-30s at that point, And we decided to have um, this cherished gender son of ours together. So so you you had one son in your mm-hmm. previous marriage and then and then you and and your husband, Joe, yeah. got mm-hmm. together and 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 you guys had Joey. Right. OK, so when was Joey? Um, born? He was born in 1988, March 9th. 1988. Very joyful day for us. So walk us through, walk us through, you know, Joey and, and what was he, what was Joey like as a kid? And, and was he, was he active or was he quiet? And to tell us a little bit about him. Yeah. Oh, so not, not quiet, not active. Yeah. Super active. Um, most boys are, I think, but you know, Joey's, um, he was from the start, he was just so into, um, sports, I would say. So by the time he was just four years old, he was playing on a soccer league, in a soccer league. And so uh, just super good. Every sport he ever played, and he pretty much played everyone you can imagine down path. Um, He was always a really super high uh, performer. So um, with the soccer thing, we were doing, by the time he stopped playing in eighth grade and moved over to football, um, he was playing with the state team. Um, He was, he was just a really good good player we would um, go on tournaments you know uh, travel to different tournaments even into Arizona down to Southern California and um, just really you know, we were the typical soccer parents just traveling and enjoying spending time with him and getting to know the parents of the other players and just having really a, a great life and you know by the time we he was going into middle school that was when I retired and my husband actually got a chance to retire a year before me but because he thought I'd be stuck working for quite a while, um, he took a contracted job and was working a little bit. But uh, the bottom line is, both of us, by the time he was in middle school, we were like Joey's our world. You know, we're, we're doing the soccer thing, and then we're doing the football thing. And then he's moving into high school, a football player and a very good one again. And, you know, playing boys, both offense and defense. So he didn't have much bench time. He was always pretty much out there on the, the playing field and just really enjoying all that time with him. And Again, all the parents and the camaraderie with them. And, and then, as far as, um, go, yeah, go ahead. I, I was just wondering. So, I mean, I, I was the same style in high school. I wanted to play as many sports as I could play. And 
um, outgoing and, and, and there were different cliques of kids that, you know, some of, some of the football players and stuff would kind of get off into some of the wrong side. It seems like Joey mm-hmm. kind of had his head, head screwed on straight. He was, did, did he do well in school? Yeah, he was always one of those scholar athletes. So he's got all these certificates, you know, showing that his grade point Absolutely. average was good. You know, his, his um, of course, his playing skills were good. So um, that, that was no problem. What I would say is that, you know, Joey was, everybody's friend. He was one of those super friendly people, easygoing. Um, there was one friend of his that after he passed away, which we'll talk about, I know, um, he came up to me and said, Mrs. Rivero, it's like, you know me, I've got a bad temper and, you know, I've had my share of fights and this and that. But he says, I want you to know that I never even got mad at Joey. He was just always such a good, kind-hearted person and a friend to everybody. I just, you know, he, he was a great guy. And um, I think that was kind of a testament. And then when I saw as he moved over mm-hmm. to college, um, especially, he ended up leaving high school and moved into Arizona State University right out of high school in 2006, the, the fall of, of that year. Um, he was the guy that, that even the girls would go to. You know, he had a girlfriend. He started dating when he was a senior in high school and she was a junior. But he had girlfriends, you know, they would come and lay their troubles on him. And I think he got a kick out of really helping him, giving him whatever guidance he could. So he was just everybody's friend. He was the kind of guy that would walk into a room and it just, the party started, you know, the, everybody, you know, the room just lit up when he walked in, you know, we thought he was just gorgeous. He was a really good looking guy. And, you know, I always, what did you think when he said he wanted to go to ASU? Well, you know, what we thought was it's only 12 hours driving time away. We live in Northern California. So, you know, it felt like we're launching him into, you know, he's away from home. He's going to have to go through, you know, the maturation and going into the adult phase that we wanted for him. And certainly he wanted himself. So he's got the separation from us. Um, but he's also close enough. We can get on a plane. We can be there in a couple of hours. Or we can take the 12-hour drive and get there. So I was feeling good about that, um, as all parents do. I mean, we took them all, you know, off to all sorts of colleges. And I would have loved to see them at, you know, the University of Colorado in Boulder. I thought that was a beautiful campus myself. But that wasn't for him. The moment we walked on the campus at ASU, it was like, I, I really kind of looking back, think he already had it in mind that that was where he was going to go. Some of his other friends from high school went there. And you know, he loved the weather. He wasn't into the cold weather so much as the warm. And, you know, and I think that, you know, they have a reputation for being a party school and also beautiful girls being out there. So I think that, you know, that was the right school from his perspective. And I felt comfortable with it because it was away, but not so far away. Like it wasn't East Coast school. Right. Exactly. So you're, yeah. you've got the opportunity to at least your, your communication's a little bit quicker. And if he got it out of line, that way. you're yeah. only a drive away. That's right. Or a quick flight, really. So walk walk us through his college life. And, and, and so are you and your husband mm-hmm. at this time are both retired now? Oh, yeah. We're, we're really re- retired. I'm, I'm personally very much into uh, community service work. So as I retired, I was immediately asked to join by my best friend, uh, Throptimus International, which is an, a nonprofit organization that works on behalf of women and girls. So I was off, you know, completely immersed in you know, helping that in that way, um, holding various positions within Seroptimist International initially at the local level, but then I also started working at the district and the regional level. So that was my world. Joe was in total 
retirement mode. He can do that really well. <laughs> so I needed to be more active than that. <laughs> but along the way, of course, I'm picking up all these tools right. and I'm doing fundraising. I'm doing you know all sorts of leadership stuff. I'm uh, doing the PR work for them at a regional level and all this other stuff. So, you know, but here's Joey. He's off at school and I'm feeling really good. I mean, we, Joe and I had saved our money. We were able to, you know, send him off to college knowing that he wouldn't have any college expense left, you know, that he had to deal with for years afterwards. We were able to fund all that and just feeling pretty comfortable with the fact that he was there. Now, the first thing he wanted to do, though, is join a fraternity because being the social kid he was, he wanted to grow his network, you know, uh, grow more friends. And so oh, yeah. we felt uncomfortable enough with that, you know, hearing all the rumors you hear as parents about how crazy fraternities can be. Uh, we let him know that we weren't going to pay for it. If he wanted to join, it was on, on him. He's 18. He can make his own decisions. We weren't going to support that. So he did that. He always had a job, you know, by the time he was, you know, I would say in uh, junior year of high school, he worked in the summers and save his money and helped him buy his, his first truck. And, you know, so it wasn't so much of a difficulty for him to raise the money to, to get into the frat. But um, his first semester was dismal in terms of his grades because of all the crazy things he had to do, you know, to get into to that fraternity. Sounds like me and Joey would have hung out quite a bit. <laughs> <laughs> Really? Well, maybe not such a good idea. But so anyway, at the end of the first semester, we're saying, Joey, you're, you're, we're not supporting this education anymore. You've got to bring those grades up or you're out of there. Right. And so that's what he started. He was in. He was in. He was in the fraternity. So his next focus was getting his grade point average up. And um, he did that. So, you know, everything's good. He's on the dean's list, next thing we know. And we're just feeling so proud of him. He's doing well by all indications. Um, I will say, though, by back in those days, the kids grew up on Facebook. So, of course, we've immediately become Joey's friend on Facebook. At least I have, you know. Oh, yeah. So I'm the mom, you know, always, you know, checking to make sure I feel comfortable with things. And I'm not feeling so comfortable with the photos that are showing, you know, the drinking going on, you know, and. Um, he's sharing with me immediately as the new fraternity member he is and not being eight to 21 that he's become their designated driver. So he's in that world of drinking, but you know, he's expected to remain sober. And so I'm feeling only semi comfortable with that. But as I see these photos on Facebook, it's like, Oh my gosh, this looks like a major party scene every weekend. And so I'm having conversations with them uh, pretty much. Every time I talk to him about, okay, remember, you know, your granddad did have a drinking problem when he was younger. And so we need to be careful. And I'm not feeling good about all this drinking I'm seeing. And, you know, just doing the mom, you know, the mom talk. And so, you know, that's all I'm getting a beat on, though. You know, at one point he shared with me during a break that he was feeling very, very uncomfortable with his girlfriend. He felt like she might have a drinking problem. And you know, I helped counsel him about what, you know, steps he could take to help her through that. But there's no real indication that he's got a problem, of, you know, really any major sort himself. And in fact, along the way over the years, mm-hmm. at least two occasions, I remember him saying that he was really tired of drinking. And this was after he was 21. But it was like, you know, we had that conversation. Why do you have to do it then? You know, easy, just don't do it. <laughs> but he's saying, no, you just don't understand. You know, you can't just put right. a glass of water in front of me and put a lime in it and call it a drink. They know, you know, that's not going to work. He felt obvious pressure to participate, right. you know, in these, you know, these scenarios where drinking was involved. So little did I know prescription drug 
you know, abuse was also going on. It was part of the party mix. And so I have to surmise that, you know, where it was, it was there. If he mm-hmm. would drink and he really didn't want to, then I have to believe that whatever was there in the party mix was probably something he engaged in here and there. Mm-hmm. Unbeknownst to me, of course. So he's in college. And is that, is that the time when you ended up having that phone call come in? Yeah, Joey is, you know, so it's December 18, um, 2009. And Joey's expected home the next day for winter break. So he was going to be with us for, I think, at least three weeks. We had a job waiting for him, as always, you know, during this break. And, you know, we had been out to uh, our other son, uh, you know, that uh, my son for my first marriage, Jim, um, was buried by, by now. And he had a four-year-old and a, a six-year-old and a 12-year-old. Um, and basically, you know, we're out uh, together as a family because they lived right here in our same town at the time. And we went out to a little Christmas pageant where my four-year-old granddaughter was playing an angel, <clears throat> beautiful little angel. And we got through the pageant and, you know, all the, that activity at the church. And then we all went out to, uh, for just a quick piece of dinner together. And, you know, at the pizza place, we separated. We went to our house, Joe and I, and, and they went to their house. And no sooner I'd walked in the door, you know, coming back home from that, I got this call from my daughter-in-law. And she said, um, April, get Joe and come back to the house here as soon as you can. And she's not telling me what, what the issue is at all. And my oldest son did at the time have a, a defective aortic valve that he had been born with. So my first thought was something has happened to Jim because she's the one that called me, you know. So I'm just frantic, you know, get Joe in the car. I'm driving as fast as I can, you know, safely. Mm-hmm. takes me probably four minutes instead of the seven minutes to get there. But as we pull up, my son, Jim, comes out of the car. So, you know, I'm breathing sigh of relief because I know he's okay. But I was then completely shocked when he said, Mom, something's wrong with Joey. You know, Kelly, Joey's girlfriend, mm-hmm. was home for winter break ahead of him. She had actually migrated over the issue also. But she had come home a couple of days earlier after, you know, finals were done and all that. And so she's there. Um, my son's telling me that Joey's been found unconscious in his room. We don't know what's going on. At that point, he was living off campus in an apartment with two of his fraternity brothers. So, you know, we're just like, what? You know, <laughs> just completely in shock. You know, what could happen? Because in my mind forever, Joey was the young, healthy one. You know, we didn't have to worry about him. It was Jim. I was always, you know, in the back of my mind hoping that, you know, wasn't going to have a heart attack or something with that about before it got replaced. And so, so, so when you're hearing this information, are you, are, what, I don't know how to say what level, but are you, are you assuming, okay, he's unconscious, but you know, they're going to take him to the hospital and we'll be there to help. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Basically like, you know, he's going to survive. And I, I, my mind couldn't even wrap around the fact that he could be dead actually, you know, mm-hmm. it was something's happened. Maybe he's been out with his friends. He's had too much to drink and. Who knows that, you know, the hope is still there, obviously. And I didn't immediately go to, we've lost him. Right. But we're trying to figure out how can we get information? Because here we are, California, he's in Arizona. Um, by then, uh, Joey's girlfriend, who found out about this because a friend texted her and let her know about this incident. She didn't know anymore herself, though, because by then, we learned later the uh, law enforcement folks had taken all of the cell phones away from the friends that were hovering around the the physical, you know, environment there at the apartment complex because they didn't, you know, at that point they didn't know what was going on. It could have been, you know, criminal situation, whatever. So they had taken the phones away. There was no communication. 
Mm -hmm. So I basically said, Joe, you know, I think the best bet is just to call the Tempe Police Department and see if you can, you know, find out from them what's going on. So I'm outside of the house. My my, um, daughter-in-law is taking the little kids into the house and we're trying to protect them as much as we can from whatever's going on. So I'm out front with Joey's girlfriend. Joe's inside talking to the PD and, you know, within about 45 minutes, um, he comes out to tell me, April, he's gone. And so, yeah, it's just, as you can imagine, it was just absolutely shocking. I, I can't, I can't imagine. And, and, and I, I, what is your first reaction with hearing your son is gone forever? Well, a certain level of disbelief, certainly. Um, it, you know, you probably, I don't know if you're old enough to remember the twilight soon or not, but it's like almost oh, yeah. an out-of-body yes, experience, you know, where it, it's just a, a condition of feeling surreal. I think your body starts to put a protective, you know, coating over you in a sense to help protect you from the shock of death. Uh, so I, I, and did they I can't them? describe it any more than it's just, you know, horrifying, just unbelievable, you know, the grief hasn't set in yet because you just can't hardly believe it's happened. Did did the police tell you what the cause was right then? Well, I, yeah, let me go back just one, one little hair, though, because while I was out front of Jim's house at Kelly, Joey's girlfriend, um, I remember just, you know, my first thought is alcohol. You know, there's got to be something to do with that, you know, if mm-hmm. anything. Because he certainly had no medical issues. It wasn't like all of a sudden he's got a problem. So in my mind, it's alcohol. But I remember asking her, Kelly, is there any chance that drugs are involved? And she nodded her head. <laughs> she didn't say a word. She just nodded her head. And I said, Kelly, you got to tell me what you know. What, what, what would make you think that? And she at that point told me that he had been to a doctor in Los Angeles just nine days before and had been prescribed a bunch of medication. And um, that was our first clue that that might be part of the equation here. And did you, did, did you know that he even had gone to Los Angeles? No, we, we knew that he had gone there, but he had let his dad know that he was going there just to visit with some friends. He did not tell him that he was going to a doctor. And of course, you know, normally you would use your insurance card. He had, you know, completely covered with our insurance, but he paid cash to go in to see this doctor. So we had no idea he'd been there. What we saw, though, was that there had been, um, he had removed money from his account because we had set it up so we could see every penny he was spending. We did keep, a, my, my husband kept a close watch on what he was spending. We could see like $500 was coming out of his account. But instead of like Subway or, you know, whatever, you know, buying food and just incidentals, you know, there was a notable um, withdrawal. And so my husband asked him about that. And he just said, well, yeah, I took a trip to, you know, L.A. with my friends. We were just visiting, you know, somebody had a birthday, whatever. So he explained that away. And, of course, we had no way to see anything, you know, through insurance records, anything like that. That would have given us a clue about that. But what we learned later, of course, was that he had been to this doctor and he had been prescribed uh, painkillers, so 30 milligram strength painkillers, 90 pills. He'd been given, given two milligram strength Xanax, 30 pills of that, and 90 pills of Soma, which has been labeled that particular combination is labeled as the Holy Trinity because it is so dangerous and you're more, you know, very likely to go up to heaven or wherever people go. So, so anyway, um, so we had a clue from Kelly that prescription drugs might be part of the equation. And so, 
as we, you know, let this sink in a moment, but then, you know, here's my son. He's, of course, he was his younger brother. He's immediately grief stricken. And of course, you know, Melanie loved him to death too. The kids did. So they're having to deal with their kids. And we just left. Joe and I came back to our house. Of course, not able to sleep. So it gets to be about two in the morning. We get a call from the detective from Tempe PD. And in the course of him telling us that he's thinking it's probably an overdose, you know, and I'm sure, you know, they they know what this looks like. Um, They were pretty certain it was. And my husband thought to ask um, the detective if they found medications in his room. And uh, we were, he was told that, yes, uh, actually we did. We found vials of prescriptions, but there were, all the pills were gone except for one single Xanax pill that was on his nightstand. And so um, he thought to also ask my husband did, what was the name of the doctor? And so we um, had that. I wish he had asked at that time because it proved to be a little challenge down path for the action we ended up taking, but he didn't think to ask who the pharmacy was. We just assumed it was probably CVS or whomever. That wasn't the case. So anyway, armed with the information about the doctor's name, um, I remember immediately coming down to my computer and um, Googling her and learning that, um, well, actually, Kel- and This is before you've even gotten to Arizona? Oh, yeah, yeah. It was immediate the same okay. night. I mean, we learned about 8.30 oh, at okay. night that Joey passed away. So 2 in the morning, so on, you know, Saturday um, the 19th, and I... I'm literally in the middle of the night down on my computer trying to find out what I can about this doctor because when Kelly let me know he'd been to this doctor, she referred to her as a dirty doctor. I'd never even heard of the term. I had no idea what that was. You know, I knew you had bad doctors and good doctors and something in between, but I didn't know that there were pill mills out there and doctors, you know, indiscriminately mm-hmm. as she was prescribing medication that could be extremely dangerous you know, in terms of overdose and also very addictive. Those are the medications she gave him. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, what I found, you know, on the internet, and I remember it was vitals.com, that website, you know, as I Googled her name, it came up. And there were comments people were leaving about her, like she's, you know, just a, a drug dealer in a white coat, and, you know, she's going to kill my kid or this or that. You know, I mean, they're just really negative comments that totally fed in to the pill mill description that Kelly had given me of her. So then I'm thinking, okay, you know, we've got to, we've got to do something. But of course, I'm still just totally shocked. And, you know, the grief hasn't even set in. It's just, just this big hole. It's like, what do we do? We don't even know where the cemeteries are in our area. You know, what do we, what do we do to get them home? I remember my, for one, my first thought being, I need to go to Arizona. I need to be there for him. But also knowing that wasn't going to do any good, of course, rational thinking comes into play. But, you know, they had to do the autopsy and all that. And so it wasn't until the Tuesday after he died on a Friday that he was flown home. And by then it was like the day before Christmas and we're having to deal with all that. And, you know, family members, instead of coming here for Christmas celebration, they're coming here for the funeral. So Yeah, I, still words are hard to come by. Just going through that experience as, as, as you're waiting for Joey to come home. Yeah, it's pretty bad. Are you, are you actively starting to collect your, your investigation on this so-called dirty doctor? Uh, Not quite yet because, you know, the mechanics of having to go find the cemetery and pick out the coffin and all this stuff, write the obituary. 
four and 21 year old kid, you know, what do you say about it at that point? You know, he hasn't lived his life yet and there isn't a whole lot to talk about other than he played sports and he was a good student and all the, you know, special qualities we found in him. But, um, you know, we were able to get one of his two roommates who lived in the Bay Area here where we are too. He was coming home for winter break and he was willing to come to our house and share what he could about the situation there. And so what we came to learn was that, you know, pills were, you know, definitely in the party mix. Um, He shared with us that he and the other roommate had an addiction problem to, you know, pills, specifically Xanax and and painkillers. And he, I'll never forget this, he said, it should have been us. We were the ones that had the problem. One of us should have been the ones that, this happened to because we were the ones that, you know, were having an issue. But the reality is Joey was more likely to have this happen because he didn't, you know, have an addiction problem, at least at that point. I mean, he'd grown into that, you know, getting these prescriptions. But, you know, the body was generally naive to opioids in particular. And so what we came to learn, of course, down path as we got the results of the autopsy was he had basically died from like a single pill of Xanax equivalent mixed with a pill and a half of oxycodone painkiller and they'd been out to celebrate the end of finals and all that stuff and a birthday and early graduation so they were out drinking at the nightclub but his alcohol level was only just over the the legal driving level so he wasn't dropped dead drunk not one less pill or one less drink you know he probably would have gotten through the night okay but And that's what I was just so shocked about. It was like, that's all it could take to kill somebody? He was a 21-year-old guy, completely healthy, and he's gone. And so, you know, as a mom, I couldn't help but feel like, God, why didn't I know this? I was one of those parents that would sign up for the the parent ed things, you know, at school when he was in high school and even before that, because I wanted to always be on top of, you know, what kids were using and abusing. But Nobody was talking about this stuff. And I certainly had no idea it was part of, mm-hmm. you know, the typical party environment off of college. And these kids were there having zero understanding because there had been no education about prescription drugs in particular that they could have learned from, at least had a fighting chance and know what to avoid in terms of mixing these, you know, medications in particular with alcohol. So, so it wasn't until about a week, you know, so we buried him the day after Christmas. And back to your question about when we connected, you know, the, the law enforcement people. Um, I immediately shared with the Tempe Police Department that this doctor was really labeled as a pillinal doctor. But I could really tell pretty early on that they weren't really going to take any action. It was cross, you know, cross state. Mm-hmm. Um, they had their own, I mean, Arizona has quite a big problem there, right there in Phoenix area, as you probably know. And so. I could tell that there wasn't really going to be much support. So we started asking around, like, what do we do? You know, we need to take this doctor out of business because she's going to be, you know, there's always only one person out of who knows how many others that are being impacted by her. So I think within at least no more than two weeks after he passed away, I did contact the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration. Mm -hmm. I remember leaving a message for, you know, them to let them know that I was concerned about a particular doctor. And within 45 minutes, they called me back. And then that started a years-long relationship with them where I was working to help them bring down this doctor. So basically, you know, feeding everything I could to them about Joey's situation and 
I came to learn right away that they already had an investigation going against her. And so what they were trying to do is gather enough information through, you know, undercover visits to her office and all sorts of things, you know, they were trying to build a case against her to take her down. It was early, you know, back 10 years ago. Pilmals were out there, but they really, there really wasn't a lot going on. You know, it was generally thought that doctors can prescribe, they know best. And, you know, there, there wasn't really a good understanding of that pill mill mentality where a doctor like her could prescribe and make $5 million in about two to three years off of her dirty practice. Golly. So it was, it was horrible. So, so you've had a conversation, multiple conversations throughout the year with the DEA and um, yeah. inevitably mm-hmm. they go in and arrest her. Yeah, it was uh, they, them and the medical board. I was also working with the, directly with the medical board and then down path with the district attorney who prosecuted the case. So ultimately, to put it in a nutshell, um, there were 24 felony counts against her. Three of them were second-degree murder charges, one of them Joey. And she was ultimately convicted of all but um, one of the counts. One of them was an undercover, you know, <laughs> illegal prescribing situation. They Apparently the uh, jury gave her that one. But um, she was sentenced to 30 years to life in prison and um, obviously will never practice again. So, you know, she's not even eligible for parole for another five, uh, 25 years, I think. So I'll probably be long gone by the time she gets out. So That's it. A- that's what I was going to ask is that, uh, you know, part of the trial was like three, you know, uh, second degree murder charges, but there were eight kids that had died, you know, young men who had died as, that were part of the case. Yeah. And there are a lot more they could have gone after, but they, you know, they needed to take her down. And so it took them quite a long time to build the case against, against her with those charges. And they could have gone for more because there is a lot of damage that's been done out there. People were coming to her from every county in Southern California, and then Joey and two other guys, you know, from ESU. So it's, it's pretty bad. What was the trial like? Did you did you go to the trial? I was there for every day of the trial. It was two months, you know, long. Um, I had family down in Southern California, so I basically just moved down there for two months and sat in that courtroom for for every part of it, including all the preliminary stuff. There was a preliminary hearing. She was actually making a play to have the case dismissed and all that, which didn't happen. But she ended up spending four years in jail pending trial. <laughs> so then finally, here comes the trial. So, you know, it's like six years after Joey died, we're finally in the courtroom. And, you know, we've got a jury and this was a really tough one. She, there had not been convictions like this across the country. So I knew there was a really good chance, you know, nothing was going to happen with her or, you know, the charges would be reduced to something that was just a slap on the wrist. And how hard is it to sit in a seat and just, and just listen to this thinking that, you know, not only did your, yeah, your son pass away, but right, seven right. other people have passed that they know of. And, and you could be losing. I mean, I, I always watch, you know, mm-hmm. TV and things like that when there's a courtroom scene, I don't know how people are able to sit in the seat and not just be outraged. And, and how, how are you dealing with the emotion and, You've got to be angry, of course. Well, you are. I mean, it, it's heartbreaking at the same time. You know, as you hear the story around each one of these, you hear the coroner's report for eight of these young men. I'm sitting literally across the courtroom from the from the mother of the the doctor. She's the only one that ever really came to show her support, but she was there every day. And initially, I was feeling sorry for her because, in a sense, she's losing her child too. 
you know, I was trying to be compassionate for her, but then I have to say down path when I heard about the financial stuff that was going on behind the scenes and they had bought paid cash for a $5 million complex, like a big building so that she could expand her business and the parents were involved in that. I found myself feeling less than, <laughs> less than compassionate. Less than sympathetic. Yeah. 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 I, I can understand that. And so the day, the day of the verdict mm-hmm. reading, what, what, what's your, what's your, your mental status? What are you thinking? Are you, well, by that time, did it look like it was, they had stacked enough evidence against her that it was, she was going to get put away for a long um, time. I, I really had hoped that, but I have to tell you that I was on the edge of my seat. Literally. It's like every, nerve in your body is on alert and again almost in a surreal place waiting for that verdict um i just didn't know um i had had to believe that my presence personal presence i was the only one that was there every single day you know that the the courtroom was in in action um we had different people come in and out we had family members that came in out and friends here and there but i was there through the whole thing and um you know then we also of course got to give well, that's a little bit further down path, but I, I just don't know. I mean, it could have gone either way because there was this general uh, position on the defense side that these kids did it to themselves. They didn't have to take this stuff. You know, she didn't know. She was just trying to be a good doctor. And there's kind of because of the stigma around, you know, addiction and overdose and all that, there's this perception that people are doing this to themselves. And so you shouldn't blame the doctor. You shouldn't blame anybody else but them. And so depending on the mentality of those jurors, jurors, I didn't know what to expect. Mm-hmm. So I, I have to tell you that I was you know, just my whole body was just on high alert. And then when the verdicts came down and everything but one count ended up being guilty, I was uh, I was just elated. It was the best news I could have ever gotten. I don't think I'll ever feel that way, you know, that exact way again well, and not, in my lifetime. Not in any comparison, but I mean, we all watched the O.J. Simpson trial. And right. I mean, you know, I'm not I'm not judge or jury, but sitting there watching that trial take yeah. place, I knew O.J. Simpson was guilty. Yeah, you know, we all felt good. <laughs> yeah. You know, and then we watched him walk out of the courtroom a free yeah. man. So you've got to have some of that still, you know hurling around mm-hmm. in your body saying, Lord, please, please don't let this be the I case. Know. So they, they, they slapped this to her. And do you, do you feel that the justice was truly served right there? Do you feel, do you feel better? Do you feel, I mean, you, you obviously can't take back Joey, but at the no. same time, do you feel like you've done something? Well, the thing that, that I go back to and, and have felt from the very beginning is I, I really don't care if she's been, 5, 10, 15, or 20, 30 years in jail, I just didn't want her prescribing mm-hmm. ever again, right? I just wanted her to take, to stop her practice and to never, ever be a doctor again so she could hurt people. Get the weapon out of and her And that's hand. what this achieved. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So she's put away, you know, she's actually made two attempts to appeal. It was turned down at the California Supreme Court level. So I think, I don't think there's any other, you know, possibilities for her to get um, out anytime sooner than her sentence. Of course, in my state, a little crazy here. They're letting people up, out, out left and right because of COVID. Oh, I um, know. Yeah. I know. So I, I am. I've actually filed. You know, the paperwork you have to file as a victim of the crime to um, be notified if there's any change in your situation. And so far, I've not received anything. 
But then, of course, I don't always trust the government to, to know if they're uh, keeping on top of their jobs or not. So who knows? You, you might, and me both on right? that one, sister. So she yeah. certainly isn't, you know, she, she's a murderer in terms of the paperwork. And she killed, th- theoretically, these three people she was convicted of. But she wouldn't be perceived to be like a, an axe murderer who would be, you know, someone they'd have to worry about out on the street. So I could see her being released. I really could. But for me, so, if she were, okay, fine. She served quite a bit of time here, but she, she'll she never practice medicine. She's a convicted felon, so mm-hmm. three times over. Do you, so you finish that now, now you're in the creation stage and I don't want to skip any parts of the process, mm-hmm. but um, you, you essentially, was it you and, and a group of people that create the National Coalition Against Prescription Drug Overdose? Yeah, it was it was me. I was the driver um, around it. Uh, my son, Jim, and my husband uh, were both super supportive, and they actually are board members of the organization. Um, but they're kind of on the sidelines. <laughs> you know, they help, um, you know, enormously when, when needed. My husband is actually the treasurer, so takes care of all the financial ins and outs and all that. And you know, we've got a full board, of course, so it's all reported in as it should be. Walk us, walk us mm-hmm. through that, that now, yeah. you know, I mean, uh, you know, in reading your bio, you've testified mm-hmm. before Congress. I mean, you've, you've been on countless uh, radio shows and news interviews and, um, you know, you are, you are leading the fight against this huge epidemic that we're seeing in society mm-hmm. today. Well, do you feel do you feel like you you you're starting to make any headway into what's happening? Yeah. So when I go back, if I and I can easily go back ten years ago to early 2010, we laid Joey to rest a couple of weeks earlier, and you know the new year started. You know, I, as I started looking at like what can I do, I've got a telecommunications background. I'm no doctor. Um, the key for me was I was undereducated. I was not educated at all. And nobody I was talking to, we were really open and honest about what happened with Joey. And when we got her, you know, we didn't know for sure what he died from. We knew pills were involved. But until we got the um, the coroner's report back four and a half months later, that's how long it took, we didn't know for sure what had happened. But I started speaking out immediately. Uh, one month after Joey passed away, I was actually at a little town hall for my, my town here where we lived. And interestingly enough, back that long ago, they actually had an event for parents, and I went to it. And I had let some of the um, the people that were involved in planning that event let know about Joey before it happened. And so, un, you know, unexpectedly, they asked me to share what I was able to that night. And so that was the first time I spoke out. I remember it being pretty bizarre because it was literally about the time one month earlier to the day that we had heard about Joey's death. So I spoke out there and then I was sharing with everybody I knew, be careful with these drugs. This is what can happen. If it can happen to us, it can happen to anybody, right? Mm-hmm. So then as I'm thinking like, what else can I do to raise awareness? Because it was really clear, like nobody was talking about this. Or I was starting to connect a little bit with other parents that somewhere else in the country had had something happen like this. So we had started to build a little bit of a network. But then um, as I'm thinking, well, do I do, you know, like a pay to have a video done and just use that to communicate out with it? Uh, I really pretty quickly came to realize that it was going to take way more than that. And then I also realized that I couldn't just walk into a school and say, hey, you know, I'd really like to present to your students. Um, the, the bottom line is I formed the organization to give me the 
validity, so to speak, that I needed. It gave you to the platform. say, hey, I'm April with, yeah, the National Coalition Against Prescription Drug Abuse. That sounds really cool. Sounds like they know what they're doing. It's just me, right, <laughs> initially. But, and my board members, of course, we, we got our board members together pretty quickly. But it gave me that, you know, validity, so to speak, that legitimacy that allowed me to immediately get into Joey's high school. And then, I, of course, I could say to other high schools, look, I'm already over here. Can I come to speak to your kids? And then, you know, continuing to just network, 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 network. Um, I was really concerned about my own county. Public health people weren't talking about this either. They saw it as an emerging problem. I saw it as an acute problem that needed attention now. So by 2012, I formed the Contra Costa County Med Coalition that I still chair and lead. And so we're doing, you know, a focused um, educational thing in, the, in my county and a lot of work in our adjacent county in Alameda County. We also formed a branch um, in North Carolina, and that was only because somebody reached out to me who would lost his two nephews, his sister's um, son, within about a two-year time frame. And he wanted to get involved, and this would give him legitimacy to come on board as our area coordinator for North Carolina. So anyway, it's growing, and in 2012, uh, one of these other little cluster groups, we decided we would form something to drive federal action because it wasn't happening there either. So that uh, we formed the Fed Up Coalition, and I'm still a steering committee, executive steering committee member of that that group, which is in fact on Monday we are going, which is International Overdose Awareness Day. We're actually going to to hold a press conference announcing that we've sent a letter that day to Attorney General Barr asking that pharmaceutical company executives either working for Purdue Pharma and other opioid um, companies or have in the past worked for them and driven uh, because of their marketing practices, a lot of the opioid epidemic, uh, we're going to ask that they be criminally prosecuted. So we've got about 60 organizations that have signed off on this letter. And I will be one of the uh, the speakers at the press conference. We have uh, four of us lined up. So. So just a lot of action, a lot of activity, just sharing Joy's story around the country. Well, so with with you starting to stir some of those things, I mean, you're taking on big pharma. I mean, and that's in, in the ag world. We, we, we've we had similar disputes and talks about, mm-hmm. you know, some of these bigger companies that, you know, kind right. of control what we do. Is this stat correct? We're only one of two countries that allows... Um, pharmaceutical companies to advertise? Yeah, it's up to New Zealand, and I understand that New Zealand was taking action. They were going to change that. So, yeah, that's true. And that's, I mean, if you if you look at, if you look at any show or any advertisement <laughs> that's yep. popping up, it's always like, it doesn't matter if you're dealing with a little blue pill mm-hmm. or indigestion. Yeah. We've got a fix for that. Yeah, it, it's really true. It's it's uh, pretty horrifying when you tune into it and you you watch Every other commercial, like at least two thirds of, of, of every program has pharmaceutical advertising going on. Mm-hmm. Now, they, to their credit, they haven't been allowed to or they haven't actually advertised opioids directly out to, you know, the general population through these commercials. But what they did instead is they promoted them directly to, you know, to medical providers. Right. So the prescribers out there. So they did a major, especially when Oxycontin came out, which was a stained release opioid. Um, they basically, you know, touted their drug as well. It, you know, nobody's going to get high. It's, you know, it's not going to get diverted because 
You know, people, it, it, it meant to last eight to 12 hours. They even lied about that. The bottom line is it wasn't true at all. All we had to do is crush and snort it and inject it. You know, you're, then you're getting an instant high that's meant to last over, you know, like the medication supposed to last over that, that long time frame. You're getting an instant blast. So it became the most popular medication to abuse in the country, Oxycontin did. And Purdue farmers, yeah, it's anyway, I could go on and on about that. That could be a whole show in itself. So, and I've had, I've, I've had mental, uh, mental, I've had, I've had multiple friends that have struggled with opioid addiction uh-huh. and, and to the point of almost losing two of them. Oh, gosh. And it, it's, it's something to me, even, even today, it's kind of like, well, I wonder what just happened with those two guys. Right. You know, it's not something that's on the front line where we sit here. I was called out on a, on a call today. I'm on the fire department, you know, and we had to respond to somebody that uh, is definitely under the use of a methamphetamine. And that's something that, that we look at, but at the same time, the opioid addiction is kind of like a free drug ring that just kind of runs out in the open with, with no real series or system of checks. There's no, no boundary. Yeah. And, and, Mm -hmm. and of course, you know, money is the root of most, if not all evil. And Oh gosh, yeah, it drives the whole thing. And so it drives the the whole thing. So April, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions and 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 we're getting a little long on time and and I Yeah, I, I just looked at my clock here. But and and honestly, I I want to have you back on this podcast because I think there is there is so much more to this story and 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 I want to make sure that we will do everything out here in the middle to project your voice and stand behind you and and we want to raise awareness in this as well. What are some signs that people could be looking for in their communities, in their families, uh, in their workplace um, that that might start to tell mm-hmm. a sign that somebody could be suffering an addiction to one of these opioids? Well, I think there are two ways, two avenues. One would be the physical signs of, of misuse or abuse of not just opioids, but really any prescription drugs or other drugs, in fact. And that would be a change in like the physical signs would be a change in appearance. You know, they're starting mm-hmm. to lose weight. They're, you know, maybe they're not, you know, in terms of hygiene, taking as many showers, you know, all of a sudden it's just like, they're, they're looking different. They're physically not looking well. In the case of opioid um, pinpoint pupils. So looking at the eyes is an indicator. If they're, the, the pupil is really tiny where it shouldn't be because of the lighting situation. Um, that's, that's what the cops will look at. Okay. They, that's the first thing they'll check is the pupils. And then in terms of behavior, it can be things like they just don't want to get out of bed. The things that they used to do and love, they're, they're, they're going to work and they're right on time and all those things that their behavior starts to change completely. And it gets worse and worse. Mm -hmm. Of course, as the addiction that has set in the substance use disorder, gets more profound, but it would be visual, you know, changes it would also be behavioral changes and just being you know i mean that's one thing that i think people need to, to hear too is we need to be more engaged we need to be absolutely you know if something doesn't seem right let's let's try to you know dig down to the to the root of why something might not be right yeah especially it, for if, kids you know teenagers especially people think oh teenage just teenage behavior well don't assume that you've got to ask questions keep that conversation going absolutely, absolutely. and lock up your meds of course so they you know, teens and others who may be drug seeking aren't necessarily going to find anything that, you know, they can either get their substance use disorder started with or sustained with. So, April, what can somebody do if they know somebody in their family that's struggling with one of these addictions? 
Well, the first thing that I would do is just absolutely step down. You know, you've probably heard of interventions that that can be in the form of a parent or just a family member or friend talking to that individual, you know, compassionately, non-judgmentally, and trying to get them to open up to what's going on with them. But there, there also are some great resources on SAMHSA, the federal agency, S-A-M-H-S-A. Um, if you just Google there, and hopefully you can in some way get that website out there. I know I shared that with Johnny. Yes, we've got it. And we'll put, we'll put a link to it with our podcast. That would be great. So go there because, um, of course, you know, mental health issues and also substance use disorder problems, they go hand in hand quite often. One drives the other. And it's hard to tell which comes first, right? Yeah, somebody starts to get down and they're medicated, exactly. and then the medication seems to be working. But then, it, yeah, I've 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 seen that, and yeah, yeah, and many people self-medicate, of course, too. So, bottom line, SAMHSA is a great resource because it deals with both mental health issues um, and also substance use disorder. So, they are a resource where you can go and you know, non-judgmentally and twenty-four-seven availability and free. Um, you can make a call and get a hold of somebody who will help you find resources in your area. If, um, and I think a lot of people don't really take any active inventory in what they have in their closet. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if you have prescription medication, of course, it needs to be locked up. It needs to be, right. it, I mean, we lock up our guns in our house and, and mm-hmm. it, you know, we no want to make sure it's the same thing. Yeah. If, if we are, um, if we have pills that we don't need, how do we how do we get rid of them? It depends on when you where you live. In my area, of course, we're pretty. You know, we have a lot of uh, police stations. We have a lot of pharmacies in our state now. The pharmacy CVS is a good place to go. But in some of the rural areas where I suspect many of your, you know, your listeners live, um, the worst case scenario is you don't put it in the trash, but you put it in kitty litter or use kitty litter or coffee grounds and dispose of it in the trash. That's worst case because it does ultimately, you know, affect the, the environment. Um, most most CVSs and most of the big chain pharmacies, period, they have these mailers that you can use that go into your pharmacy. Most, most people have access to a pharmacy somewhere and they can get these little mailers and those can be sent into a place that will dispose of them. They, they, the pills get incinerated, which is thought to be the, the least impacting on the, the environment. And so otherwise, police stations, the pharmacies, and also these, these mail-in bags. So if, uh, if you had to summarize, how, what, what do you want the world to know about Joey's legacy? Well, what I want to know is Joey was so much more than an overdose. You know, this, if I had to guess how he would have met his end, first of all, I sure would have hoped it would have been long after I was gone, right? Mm-hmm. But I would never have guessed that an overdose would have taken his life. It was so impossible for me to ever conceive of because of who he was. Right. Um, he would have graduated in five months with a degree in both um, communication and business. He already had some possible you know, uh, career opportunities brewing for himself. He had a beautiful girlfriend. I can't help but believe that we would have eventually had grandchildren from him. I'm thrilled to have the three I have, but I would have loved more. Um, bottom line is that was not Joey. You know, everybody needs to know that this is something that can happen to any family. And his legacy for me is that he's become the rock star he often teased about wanting to be. He never guessed it would have been this way. And I'm sure he would have been mortified for me, you know, being out talking about him like I do and 
sharing what he would have thought was just a horrible way for him to have died. But, you know, he has made a difference and that means so much to me. His story, I know, has resonated in so many ways, not just nationally, but internationally, too. We've been on certain programs, you know, I have and shared a story that's gone internationally down to South America. It's been put into Spanish, you know, so Spanish-speaking station recorded at a nine-minute segment. So it's really his legacy. What an unbelievable legacy, though. I mean, for him to, to look down and say that even though prematurely his life was taken, the opportunity that you have stepped up to the plate. And I want to say God bless you. And thank you so much for that, you know, activism that you're doing and that you are truly creating a change, but the countless lives that you will never know Mm -hmm. that you, you and Joey have saved. I mean, it's, it's uh, my utmost respect and gratitude goes to you and for you to be able to find the courage to, you know, to sit here today and just talk to us about, uh, the difficulties and the tragedy that you had in your life, but how you were, you were taking the fight back to the, the root of the cause. I know that's what we do. <laughs> you're doing Thank a great you. job. And, and, and I mean, that, I mean that from the bottom of my heart, I, I ask a question and it's hard for me to, I ask two questions at the close of our podcast, excuse me. I think it, it's hard for me to, to ask the first question because 90% of uh, the people that have answered this um, are living. You you had to live through this, but in life now, today, after lo- after losing Joey, what's your biggest fear? Oh gosh, it's probably um, losing my other son, who, although he's had his aortic valve replaced about um, three years after Joey passed away, um, I worry about him and I want him to be safe, and of course, the rest of my family members. I. You know, anything else, COVID, whatever, it's like nothing else is really that important anymore. I deal with it and I'm able to, you know, they always say what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And, you know, that's how I feel. It's like I can let a whole lot of other things in life go. But to lose another precious family member, my sisters or my brothers, you know, whatever, family members, uh, that that's what I live in. You know, if I fear anything, it's that having to go through another tragedy like this. although. Other than my son and my husband, and oh gosh, I know my sisters, everybody. Anyway, let's just leave it at that. It's, it's losing family, excluding uh, your religious preference and a family member, which is again hard. Who's your biggest hero? Hmm. Gosh, that's a good one. I know. I it's 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 a it's a loaded question. And so I can't I can't put God in there, right? <laughs> oh. Yeah, well, it's none of the politicians. <laughs> Amen, sister. Know. We're with you on that one, too. Yeah, I guess it would have to be. And I don't know if it would be just one person. It would be the other, you know, the other parents. And I could name multiple individuals who have come alongside me. You know, they're my heroes. And there's too many to name now, I can say 10 years later. But it would be all those that are fighting for this you know, this cause also, and, and they've lost their kids or their other family members. And the fact that they are using their stories also now to stand beside me and, and make a difference and help break down stigma. So other families don't have to, to go through this. And that's the number one thing, reason for us, any of us doing this work. So I hope that's inadequate. It's not one person. It would be a collection of people that are working with me. It's it's yeah. And I'm, that is more than a viable answer. You know, I had Johnny mic'd up the entire the entire episode when you were you were talking to us today, 
And Johnny, rudely, I didn't introduce you. No. But closing thoughts on just listening to to April. Um, closing thoughts are uh, April. You mentioned in the pre-interview, it's not just a teenage, you know, twenty-one-year-old problem. Mm-hmm. And if you could just, you know, and. 15 seconds, sum up what you told me. It's more of like a 25 to forget the age group, which was kind of really shocking to me. Well, it really is. I think most people think that this issue, you know, most people that don't really understand yet what the dynamics of it are, that they think it's the teenagers or like you say, the young adults that are experimentally using these medications and getting into trouble with Mm -hmm. them. But national statistics and born, you know, even locally where I live, it's really kids that are people, let's just say adults that are between about age 25, we start to see an uptick. But by 35 to about 60 years old, you see a huge increase. And so it's those of us that are adults that are getting injured or as we're aging, we're starting to have more, you know, this is or that, you know, that <clears throat> doctors are very happy to prescribe to, to manage through particularly painkillers, you know that are getting into trouble. And, you know, you don't see it coming. Substance use disorder, there are a lot of different factors that can stimulate it, family history, addiction, whatever. But individually, I think my strong message would be everybody, whether you have surgery or you have an accident of any sort out on the farm or wherever, you need to be really careful. Avoid opioids if you can or painkillers. If you can't and your pain is so acute, just you really need it. You've got to be really, really careful. Go off of the medication as soon as possible. And um, in fact, the CDC has new guidelines out. They've been out for a few years now. But they say that even after surgery, it's only like a two or three day time frame. You should be on these painkillers. The longer you're on them, you can even develop something called, um, I'm probably not going to remember the term, but hyperalgesia. That is it. And it just means that you actually become more sensitive to pain over time, taking these medications. You know, a lot of people do anyway. So mm-hmm. be careful. Be careful. It's really, really life-threatening if you uh, become dependent and you develop a substance use disorder. It's really hard to escape from. Well, April, from from our team out here in the middle of nowhere and uh, and our families, again, thank you. And thank you for, for sharing the story of Joey and, and we will do everything to empower the legacy of that guy. I appreciate that so much. You know, you can reach thousands where I have to go a little clusters of people at a time. Typically we're going to so do it. Thank we're, you for sharing that. We're, we're going to, we're going to get this out there. So. We, okay. Welcome me back anytime. We'll talk about Naloxo next time and some other things. Absolutely. Thank you so, so much for your time. And from all of us out here in the middle, have a good day and God bless.